been an action-packed week in the Canadian real estate market. Yes, it has. <laughs> Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Show. Uh, here, we're going to talk about all sorts of different topics related to the Canadian real estate economy and markets, mainly focused on Toronto, but we like to really spread out and cover any news stories across the country. Yeah, we like to pretend like we know about the overall economy here in Canada, but we really just know, you know, pockets of Toronto. But this is the Canadian Real Estate Show. So here we are. We got lots and lots of news for you this week, don't we, TK? Yeah, and we may even have a couple guests to join us at the end of the show. So let's first start by looking at what's going on today in the local Toronto real estate market. You know, January was uh, a very busy month for realtors. We had a lot of activity. We had a lot of buyers out there who were competing for homes. But what do you think prices have been doing, Daryl? It's interesting that you asked me that, TK, because I feel like you're trying to trick me. But based on what I've seen, it, I feel like, you know, prices are fairly stable at the moment. Well, so far, we haven't seen what the Toronto Real Estate Board's January numbers for 2024 have been. But we are expecting to see a small rise in prices based on the activity that we've seen and the lack of inventory. The charts I've seen that have been compiled on Twitter show actually a small dip in prices, but so negligible that it really shouldn't matter. One of the things about statistics is uh, they can be easily manipulated. So you always have to be questioning the source of those statistics and exactly what type of measurements they were making. But so far, based on you know anecdotal tales of uh, competing offers and prices compared to some of the last sales in those particular neighborhoods, we have seen some pressure on prices. And again, it's uh, as a result of an increase in demand and a lack of supply. There definitely seems to be a strong demand out there right now. We saw a story of a semi-detached home in Mississauga this week that had 85 offers. That's 84 disapp disappointed people, Daryl. That's true, TK. 84 disappointed people. Can we blame the realtors for this one, TK? I would most likely say yes in this case because 85 offers seems to be a little bit unnecessary. We're mm -hmm. the marketing methods and pricing strategies that were selected by the listing agent necessary to achieve that goal? Could the listing agent have achieved that price or even better with a different type of marketing or pricing strategy? Could that agent have saved the time of 84 disappointed buyers if a different marketing strategy and pricing strategy had been employed? What do you think, Dale? I think that a lot of the buying agents should have probably just push this one aside and considered it out of reach for their client's budget, knowing the market the way that they should. When and having no, access... Well, I'm sorry for interrupting you, Joe. That's okay. We'll give you the first strike. Right. My apologies. If you're any good at your job as a realtor, from my perspective, 
you would know what that price should fetch, regardless of the amount of offers involved. And if you go into it with the right information, most of those people just should have looked the other way. Have you heard any stories lately about a seller who might be struggling to make their payments because of the increase to their interest rates month uh, over month from a variable rate or because they've renewed in in uh, the last 18 months uh, their previous fixed rate? Have you heard of those situations, Daryl? I have heard of that a few times. I feel like that story is dying out a little bit, but... Obviously, there are some rotten eggs in this bunch. If you're listening to this podcast right now from the comfort of your own living room, we suggest that you hit the subscribe button, like the video, and leave a comment if you have anything to say. We really hope that you learn something from this video. And if you do, please pass the message along so that more and more people can learn from us as you have today. And so what happens is buyers have this belief that they are going to be the lucky ones to buy a property for what is um, no doubtedly, uh, um, undoubtedly um, characterized as under market value, right? And so when somebody decides to make an offer on a property that's listed for 750 even though the sales of that property in the neighborhood or similar property types are over a million dollars and that that same property sold for close to the asking price over five years ago, what buyers believe is maybe this is the one where the seller is going to let me have it for less than what they could get for it. And perhaps the delusion of the 84 disappointed buyers was far greater than the uh, capacity of their realtor to convince them that making an offer was a bad idea. Well, you can't get it if you don't try. That's the lesson here, right? Wayne Gretzky credited his father, Walter, with saying you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, kid. That's right. And I believe that that could not be more true than for those 84 disappointed buyers who, unfortunately, this week spent their time, energy, and agent's gas money on making an offer on that property in Mississauga. What a great Canadian reference you made there with Wayne Gretzky, eh? Thanks, Daryl. Well done, TK. So what else is happening right now in the current market of the Toronto real estate or Canadian real estate markets for well, that matter? It seems that there isn't only demand in the buying market. It seems like there's a over demand in the rental market as well and not only any rental market it seems to be that there's a lot of people just looking for a section of floor in the city right now and we have a major story that broke this week of 25 immigrant students living in one basement in brampton now, before we start commenting on this news story, and anybody uh, believes that maybe we're uh, not sensitive enough to their situation, um, we are just bringing attention to it. So hopefully that there becomes a solution that we can offer these international students. But I'll give you an anecdotal story that I actually heard last night. 
I've listed a condo uh, for sale that is going to be coming on the market at the end of uh, this week, uh, February 8th. And it's in Scarborough. And the owner is of um, Indian descent. You know, he's a Canadian. He's been here many years, but he's got a lot of connections in the Indian community. And he says he was offered the last time that he was renting out his condo about a year ago from somebody that he knew an opportunity to strike gold by renting out his one plus den condo with two washrooms. The den is suitable for a uh, queen size mattress and could be characterized as a second bedroom. And he was offered from one of his uh, community brethrens to house eight international students and that he would be paid a premium where he was only able to rent conservatively $2,200 a month in a long-term rental situation to a couple, a young professional couple that he has currently in the unit, or eight international students who would be willing to pay him cash, $3,500. And I'd just like to share that with you, Jeff. If I put on my investor hat, TK, that sounds fantastic because my return on investment would soar through the sky to the moon, as we like to say. But I feel like my guilt would not be able to handle the living conditions I'd have to provide in order to achieve those profits. But it seems like there are many, many landlords who have no issue with this at all. Actually, it seems like if we do the math, can you imagine what the total is if you have 25 tenants in your basement? That is really just supposed to be for one. Can you imagine what the boost to the performa would be on a month, on a monthly basis? Now there is something else that we need to take into consideration, which this client um, believes that he uh, avoided uh, any uh, future issues by by rejecting the offer from the international students um, liaison and uh, decided to go with a, a young professional couple who make six figures and have uh, professional jobs here, but they were new to Canada as well. And what he said was, is there would be uh, potentially an increase of $15,000 a year uh, gross income on the property, but there would be a strain on some of the utility costs. So he did realize that that would be something that he would have to absorb in that pro forma. But he also said that most likely having eight students living in that condo that was designed for two people. Uh, that was newly constructed only within the last few years, so perhaps has substandard building uh, materials. Uh, he believes that he would have to then later on incur a future cost on the capital repairs, um, i.e. Uh, flooring, kitchen, bathrooms, fixtures, paint, walls, doornails, door handles, uh, and any other potential damages that the tenants may cause. And so he decided that the ends didn't justify the means, and that, like the old adage, which is very true, if it's good, good, too good to be true, it most likely is. It sounds to me like the next Airbnb. And what was the real issue with Airbnb is that it just didn't end up being sustainable. And so while it seems like the good times are rolling, if you are a slumlord in Brampton right now, it seems like they're... The party is over because there is new legislation that could be on, could be off at the moment. It's unclear currently, 
but it seems like they've put a licensing process in place in order to combat the level of separation going on with units in buildings or homes at the moment. The North Oshawa community also has a special licensing near the University of Ontario and Durham College. And what's happened since that licensing has been put in place is the units in those uh, areas um, have been legalized. They have been controlled. The amount of illegal units has decreased and that there has been uh, protections given to tenants in that area. That is quite noticeable over the last 10 years, roughly, uh, maybe less. And um, well, probably probably 10 years at least now. Now, when you look at what that does, though, is it actually removes rental units from the areas that need them the most. Now, what is more important, safety or supply? And so that is one of the questions. And I believe the city of Toronto, one of the dilemmas that they face is that if they over-regulated basement apartments, it would seriously exacerbate the supply problem on uh, cheap rentals and affordable rentals. And that's something that they uh, know is going to be a problem. And I believe that Brampton, the mayor, Patrick Brown, would also be well aware of this and therefore decided to only regulate a small area as opposed to the entire city of Brampton, because we are in a housing crisis. Whether they are legal suites or not, we need as many places for people to live as possible. And of course, it's the people that are doing everything by the book right now that are out in the streets protesting the decision to turn this zone into a licensed zone for landlords because generally they're just asking people to follow the current rules it seems to me that you have the legal amount of people in the legal amount of spaces in the building or the home so um it seems like we have a real conundrum here don't we we definitely still have a housing uh, supply issue and so one of the things that we talked about on our live stream this week on the clips channel and if you've noticed we have changed the way that we are uh, presenting this news today in this episode but what we would like people to know is that these issues will not be solved through simply a licensing of apartments in the Brampton area. This will not be something that is solved through media attention because we've had media attention on foreign students. The University of Toronto Scarborough campus has had many illegal rooming houses, which we have now uh, in 2023 been able to increase the area which legal rooming houses can be uh, permitted. But international students have been um, part of the uh, storyline for many years now on the substandard living uh, accommodations that we've been uh, giving them and that the people who are taking advantage of that situation uh, not only are trying to profit from the supply issue but also putting the students at risk and yet the government doesn't seem to have any real solutions on creating more supply the only options that they've come out with as of yet is well, maybe we should stop letting so many international students in. What do you think about that, Joe? I think, as usual, the government is aiming for the wrong part of the problem, and they will likely not fix anything by slowing the amount of 
students that come into this country. I think we're still going to have, even with the slowdown, record amounts. Well, maybe not records compared to the last couple of years, but still ridiculous amounts compared to historic averages when it comes to immigration. And so if you add that on top of an already strained system that's already doing crazy things, um, it can't help the situation from my perspective. Now, what's also interesting as part of this whole story is that we'll talk about um, a housing crisis and a shortage of inventory but in the news right now we see articles about builders and developers having more inventory than ever right now and people are just not buying the excess inventory off of them or it's moving extraordinarily slowly and just like a little caveat before i hand it over to you tk the Toronto sales process for pre-construction has been abnormal against the world stage for a very long time. And to sell out an entire building of four or 500 units in a weekend or in a week or in a month is absolutely insane and unheard of anywhere else on the planet. So what's probably really happening is we're getting to a realistic amount of inventory and a realistic length of sales time as part of the process moving forward but maybe i'm wrong i think there is some truth to what it is that you're saying daryl i think that your point is very valid and succinct but what i'd like to point out though is that a lot of the pre-construction pricing that has been uh, absorbed by buyers over the last couple of years has been inflated uh, due to rising costs of construction as well as uh, cheap debt but also due to the rising cost of, of land and um, uh, basically government uh, interference through taxes, levies, development charges, HST, you know, so on and so on. And so I believe that buyers now, looking at the performance of their pre-construction investments over the last couple of years, have decided, well, maybe this isn't the type of investment that's going to be best suited for me and my grandmother's line of credit. Now, when I was speaking to a client recently who bought a property in 2013 and this was the case back then he reminded me and i thought long and hard about it and he said we lined up at the developer's office which was you know in another part of the city not at the location that the building was going to be built and we were amongst the first 100 people who were in that line to get free parking and an opportunity to select the unit of our choice and those type of methods were being used at a time when the pre-construction pricing and resale pricing of that day were much more in line with each other. And so as costs increased, the pre-construction market changed from developers launching their own projects without the aid of a cooperating brokerage and the buyer agency that we have today. And they were able to sell projects in the same fashion uh, for similar um, um for similar profits and uh, seem to be quite satisfied. And so once the agents get involved and there has to be a compensation for the representation of that buyer agent in order to be able to sell your product, that's when you know maybe these have been sort of a hard sell 
And then it wasn't about it being a good investment or not, but it was just a well-oiled sales tactic that led a lot of people down a road that they most likely regret. It's interesting that you say that because that definitely has to be part of the puzzle. But I think what we have left over in the inventory are units that are larger that maybe people want, but they can't afford. So what happens in the process with development is the city mandates that you have a certain amount of larger units and they need you to have a certain amount of three bedroom units and they need you to have a certain amount of two bedroom units. And in order for the performa to work on paper, you need to sell these units at a certain price per square foot. And as the size of the unit increases, the cost or the, the, the price per square foot does not decrease. It stays at least the same, or at least you want it to from the sales perspective. And what happens is you end up with a bunch of inventory that you have to wait longer on to sell for the price you need to get in order for your project to not underperform for your investors. And so we get caught in this trap of, yes, we're building stuff, and yes, in the certain environment where everything is right and money is flowing and, and people have buyers willing to buy anything, the system can, can work. But I think what we're finding as part of this process is that people can't afford two, three bedrooms in downtown Toronto for two and a half million dollars in a basic normal building. One of the obstacles that we've been facing, and, and all your points are uh, well um, received, I believe, by by the public, because there is uh, some responsibility that the government needs to have here. It's not the developer's fault for them uh, not being able to provide a, a affordable housing. I mean, if we've got 31% of a new construction home going to some form of government tax or, or, or levy, um, that means that you know, you've got a significant amount of the project that is going to be um, required to 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 be uh, increased in price in order to be able to cover those costs. And so, when we're looking at in the past where development charges and taxes were uh, when developers were selling their own units, how much has changed over time? I'd like to see uh, a chart on that. What the percentage has changed over the last ten years? But more importantly, is the government right now has been relying on individual investors to buy these condos, putting their money at risk, putting their um, uh, credit and their and their lives, you know, uh, on 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 uh, at risk again in order to be able to to construct these units. Where at the same time, uh, they haven't been willing to make the concessions. So we have seen now the HST uh, portion of uh, purpose-built rentals be removed, both from the federal and provincial government. But what's necessary in order, because the land cost doesn't seem to be something we're able to decrease as much as anybody would uh, hope for. The density is something, so what can be built on that land is something that I believe uh, all level of governments are, are working very hard on right now. And I think we've seen some uh, amazing changes there. But the cost of construction and land costs being two major factors are not able to be um, changed by the government uh, really much at all. And so in order to influence more construction, uh, we shouldn't have as many condos. We should have more purpose-built rentals. We should have less government 
tax. So therefore the percentage of the sale price or the percentage of the construction cost, overall cost to build that purpose built rental will be, will be far less than what uh, it is right now. And some tax advantages for large multinational or Canadian corporations who want to add uh, residential real estate into their portfolio. Some very large tax incentives in order for them to say, you know what, even if this doesn't make me money on the construction side of the project, it's going to benefit my business in other ways. And these are the things that I believe are going to be uh, more impactful than um, Patrick Brown's licensing of basement apartments in Brampton. Well, and having said that, we have Mr. Sam Mizrahi in the news again, who seems to be getting foreclosed on another site. And so I think from my perspective, what I've noticed is there seems to be this split in the supply that's able to be brought to the market because really everything is luxury. If you look at any brochure for any rental, whether it's purpose-built rental or any condo, if it's being sold, every building right now is called luxury. So what is actually luxury is being muddied out there in the market. But what we're really seeing, at least from a cost perspective, is you can either build something really cheap to be somewhat affordable to qualify for everything you need to qualify for to get the financing you need to get in order to be able to build a purpose-built rental. And that thing's not going to look pretty. That's for sure. In order for it to make any money at any point in time. Um, but we, we have an unwillingness for these people that are even trying to build to even start building now because look, people are going bankrupt uh, because of other factors like uh, construction costs, which are actually going down, but other costs like interest rates have just killed a lot of projects. So when you have, what you have right now is people doing either super cheap to qualify for that really super cheap financing and, and do things that way, or people are going super high end, super expensive, super real luxury. And that middle is going to disappear. And, and and then a developer nowadays, you have to be either really well um, pro, uh, uh, capitalized or people are dropping like flies. And we see a lot of uh, foreclosed on sites right now that are zoned, they're almost zoned coming across our desk. Well, the current uh, state of pre-construction condos with the oversupply that they're in right now, I imagine that <clears throat> some of the developers' plans were to be launching sales in 2023, 2024, and those plans uh, weren't realized. And so when you're looking overall at you know the picture of uh, the economy and uh, interest rates and consumer confidence, um, it looks like we're going to be in this situation for a lot longer than people had expected. And you more you know more than anybody else would know, um, adding 24 to 36 months onto your timeline on some of these projects, um, just make, no longer makes them feasible. Well, and generally, when you're coming to the decision of should we launch now or should we wait, and you're weighing those costs, it's likely on top of uh, a decision you've already not been able to make where you've 
paid all this extra interest for all this extra time dealing with things that are, you know, just typical for development in the city of Toronto, everything just takes longer than anticipated or longer than it should, regardless of what's going on. So you have this additional already that you, you, you hopefully put in the performa as some kind of cushion, but now your cushion is probably eaten up. And now you decide, you know, should we wait? Is the market going to be better? Is it worth it? Is it worth the cost or should we just launch now? And so I have to think that most people that are launching now have a couple of agendas. One, they have to, because they're being squeezed by a lender, they have no choice. They have to move. They're not capitalized well enough to, to hang on or do what they need to do. Uh, two, they need to keep the wheels moving because they're a big machine and they just need a project to keep all the good staff on board uh, during a slow period. So they'll just take one for the team. Or three, they're trying to eat up market share in an area and put some other builder out of business. Or, or destroy their deal, maybe eat them up for breakfast after they go out of business. Otherwise, I don't know why anybody would be selling right now because it's not a good time to launch anything. But it's a there tough is good decision. News. Yeah. There is good news, though. This week, Olivia Chow did announce that instead of the 10.5% property tax increase, it's only going to be 95 Wow. Due to the federal government providing $143 million towards the fight to keep refugees housed in Toronto. Now, <clears throat> I'm no expert on refugees. Neither am I an expert on uh, municipal budgeting. But I've seen the government spend money before, and I know exactly how far $143 million goes. And I can tell you with certainty that that does not go very far. And so what I had expected from the beginning was the municipal government to announce a higher tax increase so that way when they did finally make their decision at a little bit of a smaller number everyone said okay it's not just ten and a half it's only nine and a half therefore I think she's doing a pretty good job and in order to be able to garner more votes which seems to be very Olivia Chow-esque she is targeting renters again and said how can I help renters in this struggling economy for them to pay lower they're not paying property taxes what can i do to make them happy i'm already giving them as many programs as i can i know i am going to decrease the uh tax uh, property tax uh, mill rate on multi-residential properties so therefore their landlords will pass the savings along to them even though there's rent control in most of those buildings and that they're going to be increasing it to the max of two and a half percent anyways. But thank you, Olivia Chow. We thank you. Everyone thanks you, Olivia Chow. And you know who really takes the brunt of all of this? It's, it's really the immigrants that come in that are struggling, that are trying to make their life here in Canada. And one of the perks of being the host of this wonderful show the canadian real estate show is that from time to time somebody reaches out or calls me or calls tk and so this week i got a call from somebody and we were just talking and we were talking about when he immigrated to the country back in the early 2000s and he was giving me the numbers of what it cost his family in order for him to come here and get his education and what struck me was that if I took the number 
that he paid. And I added inflation to it. I'm pretty sure. And maybe I did my math wrong because that tends to happen from time to time. But I'm pretty sure that it was even more expensive for immigrants to come here and go to school back then. So here's our friend, TK. This is Navraj, right? Did Navraj. I say it right? Navraj. Hi, yeah. Well, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Thanks Great to be for being here. here. I'm a I'm a long time watcher. A long time watcher. Well, don't TK. don't be nervous. That? We're just two regular guys in, in black and white suits and ties trying to I missed uh, the memo. professional trying to be as I professional missed. as we can today, as Pete. serious and professional for our followers as we possibly could be because people want to hear the truth from us for some reason tk and people come here to learn and we've been clowning around and we feel really bad about it so we brought you on to get into some serious topic and that's immigrating to this um what used to be wonderful country that now is kind of suspect depending on your perspective but what i was telling tk is that you 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 guys i don't know if we can share the numbers but you guys spent a bloody fortune for you to come to school here yeah um i mean i'm transparent so i will share my numbers with you i moved to this country about eight years ago um i did bachelor's in engineering from uh, university of waterloo when i started i think the tuition for a term was twenty thousand a term so that's four months twenty thousand by the end of it, because they have annual raises on the tuition fee, uh, I think by the last term I was paying close to twenty-five uh, thousand. Um, and now it's probably even more. It's probably like thirty, thirty-five thousand range for bachelor's in engineering, um, at least. Um, but it depends on the school. Um, the diploma mills they will not charge as much, right? So it depends totally on uh, where you're going for school here. So my degree from the Athabasca University in Alberta. Do you think that the price has gone up from $750 that I paid in 2005? Surely. <laughs> uh, I would guess like, yeah. Maybe a, maybe a slight, <laughs> slight increase. Maybe a slight increase. <laughs> slight increase. So you, you're a smart guy. I mean, that's a, that's a great program. How does somebody from anywhere in the world come to Canada and pay for that cost? And actually, University of Toronto is much more than that this year. Yeah, right. uh, I, th I think Toronto is even more. Back in the day, I was comparing where, where I should go, Waterloo or Toronto. I had offers from both uh, and decided to go with Waterloo because it had a better engineering program and the fees was also a bit lower. As it's like there's a 5-10% difference at least. Um, but yeah, it's difficult. Uh, 20, 25,000 every four months is, is a lot of money. Uh, thankfully, at the University of Waterloo, they have a co-op program so you can do internships as part of your educational um, program so every four months you're you have an opportunity to do an internship and you know uh, make some decent money if you can find um, good jobs or internships and that would help pay for the tuition I, I paid my own tuition my parents helped me initially um, but I was lucky enough um, but it's difficult I mean if you want to come to Canada uh, for a good program it's impossible uh, if you don't have the funds but if you want to come to a diploma mill I think it's different I, I think Maybe for diplomas, it fees probably five thousand, ten thousand. I'm not even sure, but they they're opening schools and strip malls. They're just not providing valuable education. But if you want valuable education, if you want the Canadian education that people aspire to, uh, you know, get get ready to pay a lot of money. So, are people coming here for the education, or are people coming here because they don't want to live there? 
Um, I think it's the latter for uh, the people I've mostly interacted with. Um, but depends person to person, right? For for example, for me, I came for the education. Uh, I thought there was better education here. And I think um, I think I, I do not regret the decision. I think I did get good education, but doesn't mean like if you're bringing 1 million people in, in a year, 1 million students in a year, maybe like 100K of them are coming in for quality education. The rest probably just want to get a permanent residency and just move here because they think the lifestyle is better here and um, they would have a better uh, living situation, even though that's not even true anymore. Um, but I think they're getting the message now. Um, they're, I, th I think people have stopped thinking of Canada as this, as this great place to immigrate to. I feel, I feel that there's been a huge shift in the last few years. How, how do you feel personally now after eight years? Um, <clears throat> I, I sometimes I listen to like a few podcasts and people uh, mention that they have changed. They've seen Canada change in last decades. Right? I can tell you, I've seen a change in the last eight years. It's, it's a different place. <laughs> I think it's just after the, I don't know, not to get too political, but <clears throat> I think there's some policy that the liberal government like picked up on or implemented that, that, that were not best for the country uh, in a way that, we were not attracting the best talent. That's what we should do um, because we, we want immigrants, but we want people to be very talented that come to this country, right? Because we don't want to add on more people um, and just, you know, they're just driving Uber or, or whatever for work. We have a lot of Canadians already that can do that work. So we need skilled labor. Um, but I think some policies that were implemented were not right. Um, and I've seen a dramatic shift in the last eight years. I had a client that I was out with. Sorry for interrupting you. Right. Just a quick note, anecdotal, not coming from me personally, but it was an Indian client. And they said, you know what Canada has too much of these days, TK? Indians. And I said, what? I said, what do you mean? Shocking. And they said, everywhere we go. They said, we're, go we're driving three hours up north and there's more Indians. And I said, but you guys also came here. And because they had come here, I think maybe five to 10 years ago, roughly, right? It's, this is the Canadian dream. Do you know what the Irish said back in the 1950s when we got here? There's too many Irish. What's going on? Why are they letting in all those people, right? And so it's just part of the Canadian culture, right? Is that there is a mass amount of immigration coming from one country. You know, Chinese was 10 years ago. You know, it seems to be India now. At one point, it was the Italians. Philippines. The Eastern Europeans, the Philippines. It's just, it's just the way how Canada was built. And so the government doesn't know any other way. They don't know how to build our economy in any other way. We are effectively warehousing people in Canada. That is what we do. And we just don't have enough concentration of other businesses to put our efforts into. I think the main difference now that we have is that in the past, the although there was high levels of immigration and they were definitely focused on one country at a time, it seems, or at least one kind of geographic region at a time, it, it might seem. But we were able to meet the demand for housing back then. And there were either price, uh, 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 pro there was policy in place that allowed it to happen, or for whatever reason, things worked at that point in time financially in order to incentivize the people that need to build the stuff so that there isn't the kind of environment that we're in right now and so when you have a cup and you fill it with water there's only so much water that's going to fit in that cup 
before it starts spilling over. And TK, we've talked about it so many times. Three years ago, we were afraid of the idea of 400,000 people coming in the next year when they announced it. And then very quickly, they announced it's actually going to be 425. And everybody was crazy. And it turned into 1.2 million. And then it turned into like 2 million over two years. And so what we have right now is a cup that's not only overflowing, but it's like the the tap is still going full steam ahead. Even though we turn it a little bit down for the immigrants uh, uh, coming for, for, for education now, it's still, it's so, so overflowing that nothing here in the country can handle it. And that's a very weird place to kind of raise a family or start your life or career, I think. Navraj, have you seen an increase to the, like in your living standards, what were the, you know, amount of people that were living, you know, in one apartment or like, have you seen that increase just like through your own circles where before, you know, your friends maybe were like, Hey, let's get a roommate on a two bedroom. But now it's like, Hey, let's have a, you know, three people in a two bedroom or, you know, those type of things. Have you seen that? I personally haven't uh, because I, I work in like a sector which pays decently. So people like to, you know, maintain their living standard. Like housing is the first thing that they prioritize. I feel like people usually prioritize housing. Um, I also do the same. So for me, I personally haven't seen that shift yet, but I'm sure it has happened quite significant. There's significant impact on people like trying to like room up now um, just to save costs because it's so expensive. We had that issue at the University of Toronto Scarborough campus. I was talking about it at the beginning of the show and that the Chinese students were all being put in these unsafe conditions and then they cracked down on it. And it was, it was a big news thing, you know, maybe five, six years ago. Now it's the Indian students. I'm going back now in my head. So in the late fifties and early sixties, my dad had, you know, they had eight brothers total plus their parents, plus his grandmother in a three bedroom house on McCowan road with an unfinished basement. So they were all on the main floor and they rented out the living room to another family. That's what you did. That's what you did. My You're grandparents to too. Yeah, and my eventually they were like, well, they're going to get another house. And then that brother moved out. He got married. They got their own place. They wanted their own place. And over time, they eventually spread out till they were all in their own home. This is just how it works here in Canada. I don't think it's anything new, to be honest. It seems like information seems to be released in a way that's very political these days. And so they're spreading these uh stories through social media and the, and the traditional media in order to be able to just get people to be angry and fearful and, you know, maybe change their vote or figure out what's wrong. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, these stories are no, but par for the maybe don't up. you think that it has gotten harder for that to, you know, happen in the current climate now, like your family, for example, splitting out and moving to different houses, you think it's possible still in, in this day and age? Like if you start off together uh, at the current prices and how rates, are you, how are you affording it right now, Navrash? Um, I live with my family, so that's how I afford it. But, um, but, but do you know what I mean? Like, like I get what you're saying and I'm, and I'm not disagreeing with you. Believe me. Yes. It seems like compared to eight years ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago, things are more difficult, but there are people doing it right now. Right. And so I think that there is got to be a level of, um, responsibility that people take maybe toronto is not the city that you can afford to live in based off of your income and all these type of things maybe your life uh, your living standards are too high you know maybe you should be living in a basement apartment maybe you should live in a condo with your family instead of a detached house whatever but you know there, there's got to be some self 
responsibility. I don't agree with all this. I want it to get better. I want prices to come back. I just know I can't control any of those things. And so I look at my own situation and say, okay, could I afford to be in a bigger house? I don't live in a big house. Could I afford to be in, in a bigger house? I could probably pay for it. I don't know how my life would be. I probably wouldn't like it, but I'm, I'm comfortable living in a house that's within my means that I can afford, that I know that there's never going to be a, a, an issue, uh, you know, paying the bills. To me, that makes me feel comfortable. There are people who choose otherwise. And so, you know, these are all the things that I think people are very, um, they avoid those type of uh, situations. That being said, something needs to change. We need, we need more housing, guys. That's it. Well, the gap between the wages out there, the average wages of the average house or the average shelter is so far out of whack from history. This is what's making it harder. And then when you add the fact that like um, groceries are up and gasoline is up and entertainment is a ridiculous price to just go out and entertain yourself for an evening it's a hundred bucks easy. And you didn't even do anything. If you take a Uber, you're 150 bucks to 200 bucks. If you want to have any fun at all. And so we, we, we have all of these younger people that used to just have to come out of university, go apply for a bunch of jobs, get a job with a good firm, save up for a few years, buy a nice house, sell that house to somebody else for a profit, get another house. This seems to be much harder unless you start with a bundle of money. It's it's harder, but it's not impossible. I, I want to ask Navaraj a question. Sorry to interrupt again, Daryl. That's like um, eight strikes, TK. I know you've you've had you you mentioned to me that you're in an industry that uh, you know you're you, you've got good compensation. I'm Ooh. I'm wondering just like through the program that you went to through friends through other people that you know uh, from other places doesn't have to be just in your community from everywhere else are there a lot of other people who are experiencing the same sort of um uh, wealth or, or the same sort of uh, what's the word i'm looking for um success with with you know making you know let's say six figures or more right like that type of stuff like do you have do you have a lot of friends where you kind of look around and you say hey yeah you know what my friends are are doing really well or you know, are they, you know, working minimum wage, wage jobs and, and, and struggling? Yeah, <clears throat> me personally, all my friends are doing well. Uh, I, I don't know um, <laughs> what's the reason, but I think it has to do with the education that we got um, in a way. So I don't really have anybody making less than six figures. And I think even if you're making six figures in Toronto right now, you still can't afford to pay, what, what do you want to say, 3000 in rent? Right. I, I agree. The life, the life, the life um, that we expected from eight years ago, if you're making six figures, you're going, I'm living good. But yeah, the cost of living is going up. But incomes have. And I keep people keep hearing people quote the average income. Well, the average income hasn't gone up. The average income. Everybody that I'm talking to is making six figures that I'm, I'm, I'm listing a condo right now where the tenants are in there. And the husband's making six figures and the wife is making uh, like a good income. Like they have like 200K combined income. They're renting a, a condo for 2,200 bucks a month. Like people are doing well out there right now. We're, the, the wealth that's being created in this inflationary cycle, I think is being uh, overlooked because there are still some people struggling. But again, I bring it back to, there are going to be people who are not able to afford to live in Toronto. There's going to be people who aren't able to afford to live in 
the communities. Uh, my uh, I have police uh, police uh, relatives. I have uh, a lot of friends who are um, paramedics. I have uh, like emergency services people. They're getting paid well too. They're all getting paid well. They got friends at the power plant. They're all making like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. There, you know, there's so much opportunity now. Where when I was graduating school, if you're going to make a hundred thousand dollars a year, that was like you made it. You were like, you know, wow, you're going to make a hundred grand. Like that's a really successful job. Didn't happen then, coming out of high school. What I mean is that was your goal. Like that would have been even coming out of college. And then after college, and it was like, oh, you know, maybe 120, 150. Now people, when they're coming out of college, they're like, I better start six figures, otherwise, you know, I haven't, I haven't made it. And and some of them are, especially in, in tech and and uh, different jobs. Yeah, I agree. Like even if you're not making hundred thousand, I feel like if you're living in Toronto, if your primary job is paying you seventy, eighty thousand a year, I feel like you always have to have like some sort of side hustle. And people do like they'll in the evenings to drive Uber or whatever, like just get that extra 20, 30 K so that they could be over the six figure mark. So mm -hmm. I think it's very rare to see people who are making less than six figures for household income. You're right. Like maybe the average is 200 K now. I don't know. <laughs> Looking at the house prices, it must be. <laughs> right. And so we, has we, to be. We, we get caught up in these statistics that we see when they say, well, we look across Ontario and we look across Canada and all the average in Toronto. Well, sure, because we still have this huge poverty section of Toronto that brings down that average, you know, which is unfortunate. But when I talk to the clients and I talk to the people and I, anybody who's, you know, just had a somewhat stable life, whether they're new to Canada or not, the incomes are, are high. And I think that the opportunities there are, uh, I think we have a lot of opportunities here that we don't talk about and that we need to really be, you know, thankful for, because what a place to, what a place to be. In my mind, Canada is the, the best country to live in, nowhere near what it was before, but how many people do you know are moving back to their home country after being uh, here for a while? Not just I've, I've, I've heard of I've heard of a few cases like people they wouldn't necessarily move back to the country. For me, like in my industry, people usually like prefer moving to the United States instead because it pays more, but the cost of living is less. So people would do that instead of moving, for example, somewhere um, back in the not non-Western world. Um, so that's more common. Um, but I've seen seen those cases. Um, do you, do you guys think that now Candace also has a productivity problem? I feel like that's the biggest problem that we have. Big currently. time. Yeah, um, and this this is what I was gonna say is that everybody that comes wants a particular lifestyle, and they have an image of a particular lifestyle. But most of the people that want the lifestyle don't really understand what it takes to have the lifestyle. They just see a bunch of people online that are either, you know what, congratulations, you did very well, you have the lifestyle and you're willing to share it with us. Or it could be, you know, your parents did very well and you have nothing to do but record your lifestyle for us to all be jealous of, right? Or, you know, it could just be that they're completely faking it. And we have no idea, but what we do know is that we want it. And most people want that lifestyle, but it, it takes somebody at some point has to work so hard and suffer so badly and bleed and cry and sweat so much in order to be able to really present that to the world for real that we have this problem because we have a productivity issue because everybody's lazy. Everybody is fantasizing and they're stuck on TikTok all day watching the lifestyles. And 
people aren't spending that extra time, you can call it a side hustle or you could call it building a business on the side until it can become your full-time business, right? And, and so people with certain mentalities can do really well in this environment because you can go out there and have eight side hustles, all of which take less time than one full-time job, right? But people aren't educated on how this kind of new reality works. They just kind of pump through the same system as everybody was eight years ago and 20 years ago. And the reality is, is that the world does not work like this anymore. And you can make so much money and live really comfortably in Toronto, but you're not going to do it by just being a TikToker. You're not going to do it by just being a YouTuber. The YouTubers with success were successful before they were YouTubers for the most part, or they did it so long ago that they had 15 years, 12 years to figure out how to make money at it, right? People just see, oh my God, it happened overnight. That guy's a billionaire now. That guy's a multimillionaire now. But it takes so much effort and people are not willing to even work at Tim Hortons anymore, right? Like I was at twice. I was at Home Depot this week. Sorry. And then I'll shut up. Um, but I was at Home Depot twice this week and I was doing like the pickup service where you just pull in, say I'm here and somebody brings your stuff and I have a bad back and I'm old and I went to go pick up tiles and twice some young woman was lifting these heavy tiles into my car. And she was not from here and she was probably in school doing this part time. But this is what's going on is that the, the, the person who's willing to accept the least amount of money to do the worst job is getting the job every time right now for the corporations to keep their profit margins. And we have all of these abused people that are under uh, experienced or underqualified working all over the place in everything right now, whether it's restaurant service, whether it's real estate, whether it's mortgage brokerage, or whether it's lifting tiles into a car at Home Depot. It's a big mess. But this is the problem. This is why people get those jobs because other people are too lazy to go for them. Right? So now, Raj, I think what you mean is the productivity is in like uh, like per capita, as far as uh, the the average person that we're bringing in, that's one side of it. So if we're bringing in a bunch of people who are living off the government, then obviously per capita, it's going down. But then also the people who were working before used to love to be doing overtime and to be willing to, you know, put their put more effort into their businesses. And now everyone, because of the cost of living and it's hard to get away and taxes, they're kind of just like, hey, listen. I'm not going to do any more than I need to. Teachers are the best example. My mom's a retired teacher, love teachers throughout my whole life with that sort of compassionate side towards them. But like, I'm looking what's going on with my kid's school. And I'm like, these teachers aren't doing a single thing more than what they were paid to do. And before it wasn't like that. Yeah. I feel like it's both of those factors, like people coming in and as well as people who were already in Canada before, uh, I feel like their productivity level has also gone down um, I feel like it has something to do with cheap, cheap debt that the government kept kept on giving people. Um, and there's no incentive, right, to make more money. For example, if you're in, in Ontario, if you're making 240000 now if you want to make another dollar more, you're giving away 60 cents on the dollar, right? So why would you really want to try to increase your income that way? Wouldn't you find, try to find other ways or... Or you at that point, you'd probably be like, yeah, I don't need to make more money. So like, obviously, taxes are a factor, like you said, uh, TK. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like we need to incentivize people to work 
to be more productive. And I feel like housing costs have bought that uh, productivity down for people. People just thought like housing is this one asset class. You just buy it once and it just keep going. It just keeps going up. So by now and then in retirement in 20 years, I would be a billionaire <laughs> at the current rate. Uh, then I'll, I'll just live a happy life. You're, you're not going to do it with your job. Like all the people I know, their wealth, very few people that came from business income. When we see the upper echelon, you know, when they did that study, they could show like, you know, the people who own these, you know, major companies and they have shares in them. Yeah, well, you're going to be a billionaire. But if you're just looking at the guys who are five to 10 to $20 million, it's all that's like 90% real estate. So why would you want to do, why would you want to be more productive in your business? And I'm guilty of this too, even though my business is real estate related, it's not my real estate investment side. Like it's, those are two different things completely, but I know I'm not going to get rich off of selling houses. It's about, you know, taking the money and putting it into real estate and trying to invest more. And so somebody who's a engineer, let's say, and who's making that 200 grand, they can say, well, should I really hustle to do more engineering or should I spend that extra, you know, 10 hours a week on my real estate side hustle and, you know, take advantage of the markets, right? Which again, just creates housing for people and that it stimulates the economy in a way, but it takes away from overall productivity and innovation. Right? Yeah, but we also need to incentivize people to make more startups in Canada, right? We need, we need more business. We have natural resources in Canada, but we, for example, the tech sector could be huge in Canada, but the government doesn't incentivize that. We need to lower taxes on like people innovating. Uh, so we also create more jobs, but that's not happening right now with the current policies or what or whatnot. Um, but something has to change. Obviously, like we can't rely on housing because uh, housing, there's only going to be limited supply, like always. Like we're never going to be happy with the amount of houses we build out, right? I think part of the issue is also that people want to rely too much on the government to incentivize them to do stuff. So for example, like you're saying, uh, tech startups, in my personal experience, it, it it doesn't take the government to incentivize me to try a new tech startup. It takes my creativity, imagination, will, and desire and passion to, to start a new tech startup. And then the rest just kind of will happen based on, you know, my abilities and the, and the people I surround myself with. But Canada's incentive program has nothing to do with the birth of that idea and the willingness and the desire to go for it and turn it into a reality. So maybe we also have people that, you know, are living in a delusion that think that they want something and think that they can achieve something, but in reality, just don't want to do what it takes in order to do it. Because if, if you had an idea for a tech startup, you could, now's the easiest time to actually do it because you could get chat GPT to code the whole damn thing for you and probably end up with a decent product. And, and there's all kinds of really inexpensive things things that could be done out there with inexpensive labor all around the world. So, so it'd be nice to be incentivized because that would, you know, maybe push more people to do it, but it would push people that are doing it maybe not because they had a great idea more because they figured out how to get to that money. But so there's another factor to that. I feel like we need to look at is uh, if you had that innovation or that idea, would you rather do it in Canada with the current policies that you have, or would you rather go south of the border where, question. where you, where you'll get better capital, where you get better tax incentives and do it. 
I feel like people will always go wherever it's more preferable, right? Or mm-hmm. makes more sense. And, and it same goes for like people who are not Canadians, right? We want, we want Canada, sorry, Canada is built on immigration, right? We want to bring in more immigrants, but we want to build in more, bring in more talent and more opportunities and these innovations. So we want to bring people from outside Canada, come into Canada, start investing in these startups. So we don't really necessarily need Canadians to innovate. We need other people who are innovators in China, in India, uh, in Europe, wherever, to come to Canada and start those startups, create those jobs and, you know, get the cycle going. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's the other factor that um, kind of gets overlooked. But I do agree, like, we need uh, we need people to do it first. Um, but uh, it'll take time, like, Canadians getting that idea uh, that they, they should innovate. I, I don't think it's a, it's a quick process. And, and to your point, Navraj, is the uh, investment capital isn't here. Because the venture capitalist and, and everybody who is investing in startups are distracted over here because of real estate. They're investing in real estate they're investing startups. In real estate. They're yeah, they're doing real estate prop tech companies, right? And so these, this is the issue. And so when you do have a good idea and you have a great opportunity for something, and let's just face it, like most startups fail. So it means we mm-hmm. need to have a hundred startups in order to have like one good one. And so if we're only investing in 10% of the startups, we have 10% of the good ones actually make it through. Right. And that's the that's the whole theory behind innovation yep. and why real estate has um, uh, stalled exactly. the innovation yeah. here in Canada over the last 20 years. I think Shopify, for example, I'm sure you both have heard of Shopify. It's a great success story in Canada. We need more companies like that. Um, yeah. But why is Shopify the only one? Like why there's so yeah. many. Yeah, there's so many tech companies. Blackberry. Uh, Blackberry was in Canada and Waterloo. Uh, they started that's out, why. But now they're dead. Yeah. That's why. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Right. Nortel wasn't that a big one too? Yeah. 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 So, Anyways. so we, so the, uh, what my point is, like, we don't necessarily need Canadians to do all the job. We need people to look at Canada in a way that it's, it's, it's great for doing whatever they want to do inside That's of right. Canada. See, if we would have got Shohei Otani, it would have changed everything because then we could have really showed the world we can attract talent. But that was another ding in the coffin, sir. It was a pleasure to meet you and to talk to you and thank you so much for being so brave to come on this very serious and informative show the canadian I, I real like estate show say one thing navraj you know we're pulling people from the comments where you're getting emails left right and center but today's talk this is top top of the list here top, top of the notch, list you represented the uh viewing public very well today so we appreciate you and your time thank you so much next time tell me about the suit so i'll wear one too Absolutely. We'll check in with you again soon. Thank you so much, sir. Appreciate your time. TK, back to just the two of us. What a show. What a show. What an exciting, fast-paced. I think there was some humorous moments sprinkled in there as well. Full of excitement. Very entertaining. uh, You know, witty responses. You know, we really might have something here, Daryl. I must say. There really might be a show here for us to work off of, you know? surprisingly tk you you were far worse at not cutting people off than i was today if we go back and we count i will see see you're horrible at this today and everybody jesus tk everybody thinks it's me but it's really you you're the bad guy you're the guy who cuts everybody off i try and save that generally from you cutting them off I you just have to talk all day. I, I instigate talk, talk, you cutting talk. me off. That's that's because <laughs> you talk so goddamn it's, much. It's because of 
the the clothes that I was wearing the reason that you want to cut me right. off. You That's see? Why. Yeah. Well, we proved it to the world, TK. We can be pretty damn serious and I must say pretty damn sexy. Pretty professional at and the same time. Pretty awesome. So yeah. we're we're you know thanks we're for, on a roll. Thanks for joining us on the Lex Friedman podcast. And we'll see you next time we'll at the same time. time, same channel, same YouTube stream. Stream but live. Will it be Clips. the same content? Hmm. You'll have to tune in to find out. Let us know what you think. <laughs>